0: Good morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be here with you. I do bring you greetings from Cedarville, Ohio, where it is 32 degrees and icy. So I am more than happy to be here in what I expect to be 74 degree temperatures later this afternoon. Uh, I would ask that you would pray for our university. We we stand and believe in six-day literal creation that Jesus is the only way to be saved, that His Word is infallible and errant and sufficient for our lives, and that Jesus is one day coming again. So our motto is for the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, and you can imagine what that means in this culture and in this day and time. We don't just want to exist, uh, we want the Lord to do something so special on our campus That our students go out from that place so set on fire for the gospel that they use their giftings, their vocational callings as a platform for ministry so that the world changes, so that Ohio changes, the Midwest, the nation, the entire globe. And then when people come to find out what in the world happened, they would look in the cornfields in the middle of nowhere in Ohio and realize that nobody there is smart enough to have ever accomplished any of this and determine that God happened. That's our prayer. So as often as the word university or any number of things pop into your mind and you think about us, would you say a prayer that God would visit us all in such a way that we would be so radically set on fire for him that he would increase even as we decrease? Now, if I'll be talking later, so I'm not going to talk about Cedarville anymore, but if you want to come hear more about what he's doing, I'd love to talk with you more about that. Um, he's working in the lives of students. People are being saved Good spiritual disciplines are being formed, Uh, sin is being confessed, and so it's a good place to be. Hebrews chapter 12 is my text for this morning. Hebrews chapter 12. I want to look at the first two verses of Hebrews chapter 12. As we look at these two verses, my heart is heavy for Josh and Abby who have returned back a time of difficulty. And yet, as I look out over an auditorium this size, I know that there are many of us that in our lives have gone through difficulty or will go through difficulty. There are moments in living the Christian life that requires endurance. Uh, There are moments in our spiritual life where it appears as though we're on a mud race or that somebody has hit the incline button on the treadmill a few too many times and it's just more difficult than at other moments in time. Perhaps you're in one of those moments, or perhaps you have just come through, or perhaps in the sovereignty of the Lord, there is one lying ahead for you. And I believe this text can be of an encouragement to us as we look at that. To put the text in its context, you you look at chapter 10, and he talks about chapter 10. He says, let us draw near in verse 22 with a, a true heart full of assurance of faith. In verse 23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. You see that he's he's setting this text up for that endurance principle. That in Hebrews chapter twelve, the word endurance occurs three times there in those first three verses. In Hebrews chapter ten, it says at the end of the ver- end of the chapter, verse thirty-five. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. In verse thirty-eight, that famous verse that talks about the righteous one shall live by faith and Verse 39, we're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are those who have faith and preserve their souls through that faith. Chapter 11, you all know well, it's the hallway of the heroes of the faith. It is that hallway where Paul or whoever has written the book of Hebrews turns into a preacher and provides us with some alliteration of by faith being mentioned 22 times and. He points us back to the Old Testament, which we know from reading our New Testament is there so that we may have confidence, that we may have assurance, that we may have faith and persevere in our faith. He refreshes our memory of all of these great Old Testament saints who, by faith, did various things through the power of God, and he moves us into Hebrews chapter 12. At the end of this, by faith, he says, therefore... So let me read to you Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. who For the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The outline for our text, if you were to look at it in the original languages, it has one main verb, one main clause, which is to let us run. In the original language, the with endurance is actually on the front side for emphasis, and so it lets us know this passage is really about our endurance and our spiritual life. In fact, if you had to title the message, it would be running the race with endurance by faith. It's with that endurance that we have to run our race before Jesus Christ, and so we see that's our main clause. There are three participle phrases that are a little more difficult to pick up in the English language, but those three participle phrases talk about that main clause. It's surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and then laying aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and then looking to Jesus. So as we walk through our text today, we're just going to walk through those two verses, And we'll look at those three participle phrases and our main verb phrase, which talks about running the race with endurance. We pick up our first participle phrase, which is, "...surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses." We notice that, "...therefore," is what starts this verse off. We understand when we see the word, "...therefore," it's pulling on everything that has come previously." And the writer at that point is laying this forward to us, saying, therefore, here is what I want you to do. So there is a amount of evidence that has come before our text that we look at today, that Hebrews chapter 11, that hallway of faith, those heroes of our faith, as we might put it, that points us back to an entire Old Testament narrative that points forward to say, therefore, we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, when you hear the word witnesses, that should hearken back to you also, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, where we get that slight definition of faith, that faith is assurance of things hoped for, and then the word conviction of things not seen. That conviction, uh, the fact that we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, witnesses, the word martyr. When you, when you hear these things in mind, we think perhaps of a courtroom. We might think of law and order or something of that nature, where you have witnesses who are coming forward to testify, where you see a conviction of faith. And so this cloud of witnesses is typically talked about in two different ways. One way that you'll find it in the commentaries, where it could be interpreted, is that, that of something like the Olympic ceremonies as they are going on. You have this arena, and you have all these people who are looking down upon you as perhaps you're finishing your race and uh, Summer Olympics, perhaps where you're finishing that long marathon run inside the arena, and as you enter the arena, there's a cloud of witnesses looking down upon us. I don't believe that's what the text indicates, but there are some commentators and some preachers who preach that text in that way. I believe that that type of interpretation actually focuses too much on me, too much on us. And no offense to any of you, but when I'm called home to be with my Lord, I'm going to be much more concerned about what he's doing and what I may be able to do to serve him than I am what's happening back on earth. I don't think there's a whole bunch of people looking down upon me this morning as I try to preach the text, or looking down upon you in your life, focused on what you're doing or focused on what I'm doing. I think that's really our American me-centered context. I think that's the Burger King commercial. You can have it your way. I don't think that's what the Christian life is about. It's not about my story. It's about his story. It's not about me doing things for my glory. It's about me plugging into what he has done for his glory. And so I don't see this as everybody looking down. down. I see this in that term of the conviction of things unseen, of the martyrs, the witnesses who are testifying to us. And I think they are testifying to us that God is faithful and you can trust him. And I think that's why this comes with a therefore after Hebrews chapter 11. So this morning, if we were to have a trial here in in our service and were to march forward all of those Old Testament saints one by one, I think they would all say to us, God is faithful, you can trust him. And that's what fuels our endurance in difficult times. Therefore, we have these witnesses. These witnesses are not testifying to how great we are. In fact, when you look at these witnesses, the only remarkable thing about them is how unremarkable they are how fallen they are, how they are just like you and me in a lack of faith in moments and sinfulness in moments. And the only thing remarkable is that God is still faithful even though we mess up time and time and time again. Therefore, we have a great cloud of witnesses. Who are these witnesses? Abel. You know, I've never seen a T-shirt that says, Live Like Abel. Nobody really wants to follow Abel, right? What did Abel do? he died. Why did his brother kill him? Because he was Abel. Sorry, that's an old bad joke, but you, <laughs> you, you, you get the point, right? That's the only thing we really know about Abel far. We, we know that there's a greater, there's a, a greater sacrifice that Jesus is the greater, his blood cries out greater than Abel's blood, but nobody says, hey, I want to be Abel. I want to be the guy who's killed because the sacrifice was better. And Abel here would testify to us, even though he died the martyr's death, God is faithful. You can trust him. Next, we see Enoch, and Enoch walks through. And, and the old joke that we tell in Sunday school t- sometimes is that Enoch was walking with God. And when he was walking along, he looked over, and God said, You're closer to my house than yours. And so he took him on up and he went to be with him. And then we come to Noah. Now, Noah's one of my favorites. Y- you have to realize I grew up as a country boy in South Carolina i mean, the middle of nowhere. Any country boys or girls in the room? Do we have anybody? We've got we a few of us. So Noah is one of my favorite characters in the Bible because I think Noah was a country boy. I, I can prove it to you. Noah lived under the same roof with his kids and their spouses. They were all under the same roof. And they had pigs and chickens and hens and roosters all under the same roof, right? And so that makes him a country boy. But even more than that, Noah had a boat in his backyard that he couldn't get to water because it was up on blocks for, like, years. <laughs> now, you, you've all seen it. Noah was a country boy, right? I, unless you wanted to make the argument that Noah was a hillbilly because he did park his boat on a hill, and then he went and got drunk and naked. But that's another story <laughs> for another time. We're not, we're not going to talk about that. So Noah, the New Testament refers to as a preacher of righteousness. Was he a successful preacher? We in the Scripture have no recording of anybody converting to the faith other than his children and their spouses, and yet Noah is in the heroes of the faith. And if Noah were here today after building that boat for many years and pounding away and talking about a preacher of righteousness and nobody responding and the discouragement that had to come through his soul as he continually preached those things and nobody responds, and here the flood is and God preserves him through the flood. He'd walk across this morning, and he would tell us that even in difficult times, even in the most difficult times, God is faithful and that you can trust him. You think about Sarah, who had trouble conceiving, but yet by faith received that power. She would testify to us, God is faithful. You can trust him, even in those difficult moments. We think about Abraham, who by faith offered up Isaac, the son of promise, as he goes up that hill with the wood and no sacrifice, and Isaac goes up with him. The faith that it would have taken to go through a difficult trial, a difficult test of that nature, if Abraham were here this morning, he would testify to us, God is faithful, you can trust him. Isaac, who by faith blessed Jacob and Esau. Jacob, who by faith blessed the sons of Joseph. Joseph, who by faith, even though he had been sold into slavery by his brothers, even though he had been wrongly convicted when he tried to do what was right. Joseph, who'd gone through all those difficulties, then has the faith to say, God will visit us. Take my bones out from this place when God visits us. I think he would testify to us this morning, God is faithful and you can trust him. Moses, who by faith refused the title of being the son of Pharaoh's daughter, He chose to be mistreated with the people of God. He considered the reproach of Christ greater than all the treasures of Egypt. He didn't look to the materialism of the world. He looked to be part of the people of God. If he were here this morning, I think he would testify to us, God is faithful and you can trust him. The children of Israel, they leave, they go out, they they come and they see this Red Sea and they look behind at this dust of smoke and all these chariots are coming. You remember... What happens there is they look at Moses and they say to Moses, why did you bring us out here? Is it that there weren't enough graves in Egypt? Their lack of faith. And then as Moses raises the staff and the Red Sea parts and they begin to walk across on dry ground, if they were here today, they would testify to us, God is faithful and that you can trust him. They go across. They encounter a place called Jericho. They march around Jericho. They blow their shofars. And in a battle plan that has never been repeated, to my knowledge, anywhere in the history of military strategy, the walls fall down. Now, if those people were here to tell us that story today, they testify to us that God is faithful and that you can trust him. Rahab. I'm glad Rahab is mentioned. And the writer doesn't backtrack. The writer of the book of Hebrews says that it's Rahab the harlot. Reminds us of who we're talking about but includes Rahab and the heroes of the faith. I think there's an important thing for us to note here is that it doesn't matter what you've done in your past because it's not about the depths of your sin. It's about the depth and the breadth of God's grace. So if you're here this morning and you have a past that perhaps you're not proud of, I want you to recognize that Rahab here would testify to us this morning that God's grace is sufficient and that God is faithful and you can trust him. You think about Gideon, who by faith conquered with 300 men. Gideon, no, you have too many men. You're going to get the credit for this. Reduce the size of the number of men. Gideon, there's still too many men. Reduce the size because you're going to take credit for this. Again and again, that's reduced. Why? So that God will receive the glory for all of this. And then Barak, who by faith. I love that Barak is mentioned here. You think back to, to Judges in your Old Testament mind, you remember that Barak, the name that means lightning... I love lightning. You watch lightning as it's out in the thunderstorms across the night sky, and it is quick, and it is powerful, and whatever it hits is destroying, and you can't get out of the way of lightning. And Barack, the commander of the army, a man's man, uh, the guy that all the world would look to to say, he's the guy's guy. His name means lightning, but when you read that story, he's been told to go after, but he's looking out with human eyes at, at Uh, chariots of iron, and those chariots of iron's a military advantage. And he says, there's no way that that we could conquer that. And so, the the lightning, the man in charge then has Deborah, the honeybee, comes up to him. You know the Lord has called you to go. And what's lightning's response to the honeybee? I'll go if you go with me. And he pulls out his man card and he turns it in and he puts on his skinny bedazzled jeans and he puts some product in his hair and creates a man bun or whatever. And and you realize he has lost all man points there where he says, I will go if you will go with me. And then he goes. And because of his lack of faith in going, the text tells us that the victory will be given into the hands of a woman. I'm sure he thought it was Deborah and not J.L., who really just knew how to put up tents, but all God needed was somebody who knew how to drive a tent peg into the ground really well, and she drove it right through his skull into the ground and received the credit for the victory. But who shows up in the heroes of the faith? It's who lacks faith. And in that, I have to be honest to say, that encourages my soul, because there are moments when God asks me to do something, and I look out and I go, really, God, this is too big. There's no way this can be done because we're looking at it with human eyes and not with eyes of faith, and yet here he is to testify to us that God is faithful and that you can trust him. We think about Samson, who in every way violated his birthright, and yet at the end of his life he pulled down the walls of the temple included in the heroes of the faith. Jephthah, David, whose story we know so well, Samuel. It mentions that by fire, perhaps indicating Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It mentions the lions whose mouths were closed, perhaps talking about Daniel in the lion's den. And it says by faith some were tortured refusing to accept release some mocked flogged in prison others were stoned or sawn in two and there's an important testimony there too it doesn't mean that God will always deliver us from the trial that is to come sometimes we are the martyr that dies for our faith and sometimes that happens but that's okay because God is faithful and we can trust him and he has overcome death and he has overcome sin and he has overcome the grave and we live not for what we may get in this life For we are pilgrims passing through this life. We live for eternity and what's on the other side. We live to be faithful servants and good stewards of what the king has given us. And even though it may be hard, and even though it may fill uphill, and even though it may be muddy or treacherous as we go through, we can endure in running the race because we have a cloud of witnesses testifying to us that God is faithful and that we can trust him. We encounter here a second participle phrase. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. It's balanced, and there's two sections to it. And the admonition to us is to first lay aside the weight. The weight, not mentioned as a sin, because perhaps there are things in our life that weigh us down, that hold us back, that are not sinful in nature, but perhaps they still keep us from doing what God may want us to do. You know, we live in a society and we live in a culture where we like stuff. We like so much stuff that there are entire businesses that make a living just off providing places for us to put the stuff we can't fit in the houses that we live in. You store stuff that is in a remote location because you really don't need it that much. You only need it on a rare occasion, but you want it if you need it. So we just want more stuff. This is what we do. And the text is telling us that perhaps there are weights, perhaps there's stuff, perhaps it's busyness in life, perhaps it's other things that are weighing us back, and in my mind I see a backpack being put on, attached to a U-Haul trailer full of stuff, that we're trying to run the race with all this stuff, and the text is telling us, lay aside the weight. My mind goes to our cross country team, our cross country or track runners at Cedarville and when they, they run, they run in these they run in these outfits. They have these shorts. Any anybody in the room a runner? Do we have anybody that runs in the room? We got a couple of people. When you go running, you don't run in what I have on this morning. You don't run in a suit coat. It's just not comfortable for running. And these shoes just don't have good arch support for running long distances. You you run in a tire that's built for running. Guys, just this is free fashion advice, but the shorts that you run in, they're only meant for running. They're not meant for anything else in life, right? And so you put on. We, in fact, spend extra money to buy shirts that are marketed to us as wicking away the sweat so that they don't get as heavy so that we're what? a half a pound lighter as we run than we would have been if we bought the cheaper cotton shirts that would have the weight in it. And that half a pound makes a really big difference when you're running miles. And so we spend more money to to wear clothes that are going to weigh less because we don't want the weight to hold us back. Yet in our Christian life, too many times we get caught up with the trappings of this world, wrap ourselves up in them, and then try to run after Christ as we're dragging all this stuff with us. And the text says to us this morning, and may be challenging you this morning, to say what is it that you've grabbed a hold of that you need to lay aside? Another illustration or analogy is baseball. You walk into the on deck circle and you put a weight onto the bat. You're standing in the on-deck circle. You're watching the pitcher. You're swinging the bat. You're getting loose, and you're swinging a bat that's heavier than the bat that you're going to swing at the pitch with. The concept is you drop the weight. The bat feels lighter. You can swing the bat faster. You'll make better contact with the ball. You'll hit the ball farther. This is what the concept is, at least in our minds. But imagine, if you will, a baseball player who walks up into the plate with the weight still on the bat. I imagine most coaches would have some words that we can't repeat in this auditorium to tell the player to get the weight off the bat. It's foolishness. Yet how many times in our Christian lives do we allow the weights of this world to hold us back? The text tells us here, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, the sin. The text says every, it's connected, But the sin is singular. What is it? The text doesn't tell us. You'll have some that will say it's a lack of faith. You'll have some that will say that it's a sin that perhaps you struggle with. And if it's the sin you struggle with, it could perhaps be different sins for different people. But the text tells us to lay aside the weight and to lay aside the sin which clings so closely to us. What is it that's holding you back? Is it perhaps a lack of faith? Is it perhaps a lack of forgiveness? Is it perhaps that you're too busy? Often as I talk with people, they'll tell me that they can't do something because of their past. You don't know what I've done, and I don't know what you've done. But I do know that Paul once persecuted the church and then became a missionary for the church. I do know that all of the Old Testament is laden with people who have clay feet. I understand that the devil really wants you to think you can't do anything for Christ because he doesn't want you to, and that that's not the gospel of grace that we see in our Bibles. So I would say to you that as you live your Christian life, realize... That you have a front windshield looking forward and a rearview mirror so you can see where you've been. And we only glance in the rearview mirror to see where we've been in order to give God glory as to how far he's brought us. But we keep our eyes focused on the front windshield as we pursue him to run our race looking only to Jesus. So the next time the devil reminds you of your past, why don't you remind him of his future? The next time the devil reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. We lay aside the sins which cling so closely. I've only seen the TV, seen the TV version of this, uh, this particular movie, but the movie Forrest Gump, some of you may have seen. In this movie, there's this, this guy named Forrest Gump who in this particular scene is a younger boy, and he has these braces on his, on his legs, and, and he's talking to this girl, and, and, and I'm bow-legged, so I, I walk with my knees in parentheses. I can fit a soccer ball in between my knees, so I kind of get that. With, with the legs locked out, I, I kind of get that way that, you know, these braces on his legs and, and these boys are making fun of him and the girl looks at him and says to him, run, Forrest, run. If you've seen this movie, you remember that scene where these braces are on his legs, they're metal braces, and when he starts to run, it's this really awkward-looking run. But as he runs in the movie, it zooms in on the braces, and you see bolts begin to pop out the side of the braces, and then these braces begin to fall off, and this really awkward run that he's doing begins to straighten out, and all of a sudden, his knees begin going higher, his arms begin pumping faster, and then it cuts away to the future, and it says, I ran, and I ran like the wind, I ran. I think that gives us a little bit of an image of what we're talking about here, that in our Christian life, sometimes early on or sometimes in our walk, we have this weight that's weighing us down. We have this sin that's clinging to us so closely. And the text is saying, run with endurance, run. And as you run, even though it may be awkward at first, even though it may be difficult at first, when we run and pursue God as fast as we can, that the stride begins to straighten out, and we run with endurance. We run. We run. Laying aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. We come to our main verb and it is let us run. We each have a race to run. And as awkward as we may run it, we are commanded to run the race. We're commanded to run the race that is set before us. I'm not commanded to run your race. You're not commanded to run my race. I'm not commanded to be jealous of somebody else's race and think their race may be easier than my race. I'm just commanded stay in my lane and run my race. And that's what we're to do with endurance, the race that is set before us. Now, if I told you to close your eyes and imagine a runner with endurance, I don't know that any of you would think of this particular man. His name is Cliff Young. He was a potato farmer. He was 60 plus years old when he decided that he wanted to run an ultra marathon in 1983. So he showed up for this ultra marathon that was a distance of 550 miles from Sydney to Melbourne in Australia. Cliff Young was a potato farmer that would run on his farm and shuffle around together in the animals. He didn't have the, the dogs or Uh, electronic vehicles that would take him around and do those type things. So this is what he did. And and when he ran, he would take his false teeth out because as he was running with his false teeth, they rattled and it annoyed him. So if you imagine a 60-plus-year-old man showing up with rubber muck boots and his false teeth taken out to run an ultra marathon of 550 miles, you've got the image. To say the least, he was an underdog. So they began this ultramarathon race, and, and he had this shuffle that took a little bit less energy than some of the other runs. It wasn't here as fast. It wasn't that pretty. It was just a shuffle. It was just running right along. And so he ran. It came time where all the other runners decided to go to bed for the night, and they stopped off, and they began to sleep. And whether he didn't know it or whether he just didn't want to do it, he didn't stop. He kept running all through the night, the first night, shuffling right along. Potato farmer in his muck's boots with his false teeth out. And this guy ended up running this entire race, and he did so in five days, 14 hours and 35 minutes, taking two days off the former record time. He changed the way the race was ran. Now, I'm not here to give you an illustration that encouraged you to spiritual burnout. But recognize in our life that reading our Bibles, memorizing scripture, spending time in prayer, and journaling of spiritual disciplines are usually not the things that we're burned out of that we're doing them so frequently. It's the busy world. And so I want to say to you, as we look at that and as we see this command, to let the text drive home in our hearts to run with endurance. You don't have to sprint. You don't have to run the race in such a way that you get the glory or that you look great doing it, but we are commanded to run with endurance our race set before us to keep plugging away day after day. How do we do this? Final part of simple phrase is looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And notice what it says here, who for the joy. We can't skip that part because that part is so countercultural to us. Who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. He endured a humiliating death. The God of the universe who created this world came into this world fully God, fully man, to live a perfect life so that He could be spit upon, could be ridiculed, could go to the cross and hang there for my sin, for your sin. And it says, Who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, and seated is important there as well. When you finish your work, you sit down. Here in just a minute, when I finish my work, I'll sit down because the work is done. It's over. You sit down. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, and the only time in the New Testament we see Jesus standing is to receive Stephen, who died the martyr's death. The work is finished. We add nothing to it. There's nothing we bring to the grace and the mercy of the cross. It is accomplished. And so as we run our race, one of the ways that we run it with endurance is making sure our focus is on Jesus. So perhaps the application to you this morning is, have you taken your focus off Jesus and put it on something else? When life gets difficult, it's real easy, and it happens to all of us at times that we shift our focus away to the tyranny of the urgent. And yet the only way that the cross can be considered joy is because Jesus had a broader eternal perspective of what was going to take place through the cross. As we look at this life, it's often in our misery, it's often in our trials, it's often in the times that the world would respond to in a different way, that we are able to allow the gospel to show forth, to hold clearly the gospel up, and to say, we mourn, but we don't mourn as those without hope that we go through trials, but we don't go through them the same way the world goes through them, because we have a greater hope. Our life is not about this temporal earth. Our life is about eternity, and the only way to do that is with an eternal perspective, and with a perspective that keeps our eyes focused on Jesus, so that we're looking to the founder and perfecter of our faith, not to anything else, not to ourselves, not to what the world may have to offer, but we are focused on Jesus. Now, I'll never forget grandpa trying to teach me how to drive a tractor. I was a little boy, and in a little boy's mind, grandpa was king of the world. You always wanted to please grandpa. And so I I get on the tractor, and grandpa has me up there, and he has me a hold of the wheel, and he's sitting in the seat behind me, and he says, plow this row, and he said, keep it nice and straight. And so I'm grabbing a hold of this wheel, and I have no clue what I'm doing. I'm just a, a boy, and I look down at the wheel that's at the very front of this tractor, and I begin to hold on to the, to the steering wheel, trying to keep everything as straight as I can. And we get to the end of that row, and I look back, and that row looks, is more crooked than a dog's hind leg. And Grandpa just laughs. And he says, you didn't do so well, did you? We need to try that again. And we back up, and we go back, and he's not really plowing. He's just having fun with the grandson, and I'm all right with that. I didn't know that at the time we're sitting there on the tractor, and he says, let's try this again. He said, this time, there's a little little pipe that comes up to let the exhaust out on the front of the tractor. He said, I want you to, to look forward at that pipe and line it up with a fence post on the other side, and I want you to aim that pipe towards that fence post. So I didn't look at the wheel. I didn't look at what was right in front. I looked at the pipe, and I looked at the fence post. And I tried to keep that pipe directed towards that fence post the entire time. And you know, I'd love to tell you that that road was perfectly straight, but I was like four years old and it was still crooked, but it was a whole lot better than it was the time before. You all know this and experience this too. You drive in your car and something's in the back seat and you want to get to it. And so you're driving with one hand and you reach back to grab something with the other and then you look back up as you hear the bumps because you've hit the side of the road and you have to steer back onto the road. When you take your eyes off the road, even though you think in your mind, I'm straight, you're not straight. Whichever side you turn to, you're going to drift towards, unless you're thinking, I'm going to drift that way, so then you countercorrect and you drift too far the other way. But you're not going to keep it straight in the middle. It happens when you glance at that phone because that text message came in, even though you're not supposed to do that and you see it as well. Your eyes are off the road and things happen, and that's why they tell you don't text and drive. And our text this morning is telling us, keep your eyes on Jesus. And when you start feeling those speed bumps on the side, recognize that perhaps you've taken your eyes off Jesus. Perhaps you've allowed the things of this world, the cares of this earth, as the song that we sing, to become too bright. But when you look to Jesus, the trials and tribulations of this earth will grow strangely dim as we keep our eyes on our Savior. Perhaps this message this morning, the Lord is speaking to you to encourage you, to prepare you, to help you. Remember the cloud of witnesses, to run your race with endurance, laying aside the weights and the sins, and look only to Jesus. Now, if you're here this morning and you have never looked to Jesus, our text is clear that there is nothing else that you can look to. He's the founder and the perfecter of our faith. It is only through the blood of Jesus that we receive the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ to be forgiven and to be united with him in Christ. God is faithful, and you can trust him. Whatever you're going through, whatever decisions you need to make, remember, God is faithful, and you can trust him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you that even though we often mess it up, that you are always faithful, that your loving kindness endures forever, that you are God who keeps his promises. And, God, I pray that as trials of life come our way, as sorrows like sea billows roll, that you help us to keep our eyes not on the waves of life but focused on Jesus so that we may run the race that you have set before us with endurance for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name.